so here's the question I want to pose to you. Um, do we know who we are? Do we know who we are? You know, you go to a, a seminar or a conference, and as you're checking in and registering, they give you a name tag, right? And, uh, of course, the purpose of that is to make it easier for others around you to identify who you are. So they give you this name tag. But, you know, when you're further along or maybe in a different stage and you take your child to a camp or drop them off for college orientation and, again, with the registration process and all of that, name tags are given and you think, well, you know, it's not just that uh, it's, it's that, that tag can make it easy for others to identify you. The reality is in certain circumstances and new places that, that kind of jar you and leave you somewhat concussed, um, you can forget who you are. And as a parent, you can think to yourself, oh my God, literally, as a prayer, oh my God, would you use that name tag to remind that child as to who they are? May they not forget. The Scriptures are so plain in showing us that problems come when we forget. Problems come when we lose our sense of identity, our identity as in relation to our Creator and His good purposes for our lives. And we become disconnected from all of that. And Jesus would have us not to go there, to know who we are. If you've got a Bible, please turn with me to Matthew chapter 12. Matthew 12. It's just a very short text, but it is quite profound what Jesus is saying here. Uh, Matthew chapter 12, verses 46 through 50. Matthew 12, verses 46 through 50. If you're trying to find Matthew, that's the first of the books of the New Testament. First of the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. We are in Matthew 12, reading verses 46 to 50. Hear now the word of God. While he was still speaking to the people, behold, his mother and his brother stood outside asking to speak to him. But he replied to the man who told him, Who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you. Thank you for uh, speaking the things that we need to hear. Uh, as directly and forcefully as we need to hear them. And we ask that you'd be so merciful to us assembled here this morning uh, that you would give us the ability to really hear and grapple with what you're saying. What you said to those people that day was hard to hear and somewhat perhaps even scandalous. And if we would but hear it ourselves, we too will be offended and somewhat scandalized, but we must hear it. We must hear it. We must hear of your intentions and your purposes for us as your people, uh, how we have been made to be, and what that would look like. And we ask for your mercy to help us to hear. And we, name, we pray in your name. Amen. Joshua Harris, uh, that is a name that may be familiar to some of you. Uh, a few years ago, he was pretty famous in certain segments of Christendom, I guess you could say, because of a, a hot and popular book that he wrote called I Kiss Dating Goodbye. 
the premise of the book was something like this. What he was warning his readers of, singles in particular, was the danger, the need to steer clear of directionless relationships that were growing, you know, moving in a romantic sort of realm that had no sense of commitment for down the, the road, for, for the future. He was warning against that and saying, don't go uh, down that road. The, the irony was, and this is what he write, wrote of in a, in a later book, uh, Stop Dating the Church. The irony of what Josh Harris himself said is that even as he realized it was time to stop dating the ladies, if you will, he was continually to be just fine in dating the church. He was just fine, by his own testimony, with attending when it was convenient, enjoying the benefits, but being unwilling to commit to anything. And so he said some very strong things in that, in that, uh, that book, Stop Dating the Church, said some strong things of himself, to himself, and then to the reader as, as well. Our text, Matthew 12. Uh, the context, as you've been, if you've been paying attention over the last several weeks, it's a growing tide of opposition to Jesus. Uh, the, Jesus is getting some significant pushback here from both the Pharisees and the scribes who are just utterly hostile, growingly, uh, increasingly so, to him and what he's saying. And then at best, a uh, cold ambivalence from many in, in the crowds. Who has grasped, this is the question the reader would be uh, understandably asking at this point, who has grasped the significance, the, the reality of his, of his words and his works? Who has grasped who he is and what it is he has come to, to be and, and to do? Who is with him? Who is with him? Who has decided, who has, made a, has declared at this, at this point. That's the question that begs to be asked at this point. And into that, into the swirl, right, here towards the end of Matthew 12, arrives Jesus' family, his mother and his half-brothers. Okay? And uh, Jesus, with their arrival, asks a question and gives an answer. He asks a question and gives an answer. And in so doing, he tells us some things that are really quite striking. Jesus is calling us into fellowship with him and with one another. He is calling us into fellowship with him and with one another. And we dare not miss the radical implications of what he is saying. We dare not miss the radical implications of what he's saying. What are some of those implications? There are at least three. Uh, at least three that I want to uh, delve into with you for a few minutes here this morning. And that being, with Jesus' coming, he comes and brings us a what I'll call a new reality, a new identity, and a new community. Jesus comes and brings these three things, a new reality, a new identity, and a new community. Let's, let's look at these in turn. So first he comes and brings... A new reality. Now, this is, is easy to miss. I'll acknowledge that because it's so, it's almost hidden, but it's, it's implicit. It's right there behind everything he is saying. You can't miss it when you think about the fact he's saying it. 
that anyone would say this with, with, with a serious expression on their face. He's bringing this new, he's bringing a new reality. He's redefining a pillar, right? He's talking about the family. Now, what is the family? The family is this basic social unit that God places us into, this basic social unit, this, this channel through which He works in so many different ways in our lives. And Jesus says, regarding this pillar, He's bringing a change to it. I think, I mean, that's pretty bold. That's pretty brash to, to, to speak in such ways regarding this, this, this pillar. He's not negating the importance, but rather He is redefining it. Uh, he, he's asking the question, so who is my family? And the answer is, not those folks out there. These folks here. He's just turned, taken the whole thing and flipped it. Absolutely flipped it. He's redefining a pillar, and in so doing, if I can mix the metaphors, he is resetting our compass. Now, we all need a compass. We all are made for it to, to live with some sense of direction and purpose in our lives. You can, I mean, you can exist for some period of time, and I just would say you're not flourishing. You're not thriving without a real sense of direction and meaning and purpose in your life. And, and, and many would admit that, you know, frankly, they need to cash in the one that they've got, that compass, and get a new one. And Jesus is saying, I am your compass, or at least should be. I am to be the director. In fact, even more, you could say he's saying, I am your direction. I am to be your motive and mission about everything. I'm to be your purpose and your passion. Your very direction in life. It just, the implied, what's implied in his redefining this pillar, the radical implication, Jesus brings a new reality. You see, just in saying what he's saying, not even getting into the substance of it, the fact he's saying it, he's come to redefine our reality. Uh, okay, so it's an old TV show. I'm going to try and illustrate it with this. And I don't know how many of you have even heard of it, much less seen it. Space 1999. A 1970s, yes, a 1970s sci-fi show. It was around for maybe two years. Martin Landau was like the big heavyweight star uh, of the show. The premise was this, okay? Um, and we're a little past 1999, so I guess it didn't work out. But And thank goodness because of the premise. Because the premise was you've got this nuclear waste stored on the surface of the moon. It explodes, and that knocks the moon out of Earth's orbit and sends it and the folks on the lunar base careening out into outer space. And therein they have their adventures over the course of the two seasons before they got canceled. Um, what if, though, what if, it was an interesting premise, interesting creative premise. Uh, what if, though, this, we're not talking about the moon being ripped out of the Earth's orbit. What if now we just flip, play with this a little bit and we say the Earth gets ripped out of the sun's orbit and into a whole new star's orbit? A whole new system, a whole new orbit for us. That's what Jesus is saying he has done. I've created a new orbit. You are to rotate around me. You are to orient yourself completely around me. How can he say that? Because he is the one true king. 
He's the one, as Paul tells us in Colossians, through whom all things were made. You get that? That's how he can say that. He is the one through whom all things were made. We also know from the testimony of the Scriptures that He is the one uh, under whom all things will be made right. Through whom all things were made and by whom, by whom all things will be made right. So therein He can speak in such ways. He can change and transform and redirect the orbits. And in fact, we should really be clear on this, and that is to say His authority and His ability is not limited and stuck just on this point of the family. His authority and His ability goes over everything because He is the one true King over all. And so therein it should not surprise us when not only will He say some things as we keep going through this passage that will go up against the grain of the way we tend to think and feel, but... Everything he says, and so and nearly everything that we could imagine and put our attention towards, he's going to go against the grain of the way that we tend to think and feel. Because, because he is this one true king, speaking truth and ruling, uh, ruling uh, over all things. A radical implication, again, though, radical implication of his coming, new reality. He brings this new reality. We dare not miss this. That then takes us to the next point. That being. New identity. So he brings us new reality. He brings us new identity. Now, think with me uh, about some cultural, maybe if you're, if you're not aware of this, I'm going to help you understand it. If you are aware of it, you need to think about it. Um, Jesus' message, his rule, transcends all times and places, transcends all cultures. And it will speak and confront every time and culture. Okay? No, no time, no culture, no society, no grouping, no tribe is going to get off scot-free here. The ancient Near East. Let's think about this just for a moment. Jesus' context, okay? First century Judea. What is the place of the family in that society, in that culture? How are you known? You're known by where you're from and who you're from, by your geography and your genealogy. Okay? There is a corporate sense of self. You think of yourself in the ancient world as a part of a larger whole. All right? The family, the tribe of, from, which you, from which you've come is above the individual. You understand? It's a very different way to the way we think. But this is the way they thought. This is what the culture, this is the mentality, the understanding that Jesus is speaking into. So, here's what's going on in the background. When, when Jesus' family shows up, his mother and his half-brothers, the culture is, when they arrive and the word is given to him that they're outside waiting for you, you need to come, and the other gospel writers tell us actually they intend to take him away because they think he's nuts. Their assumption is, because they are his family, he will go with them. And everyone watching there, because of the cultural assumptions of the day, it's just a given. He will go with them. Well, that's not the way it plays out, is it? That's not the way it plays out at all. 
What Jesus is saying is, look, yeah, I understand. You're known by your family. You follow me, I'm putting you into a new family. You're accustomed to think of, thinking of yourselves as us. That's good and right. But I'm giving you a new us. A completely new us if you follow me. You see, the, the scandal of this, the offense of this, how hard this would have been for them to grapple with. But it is no less so for us. Now transfer all of that What's going on here in the offense of that and how this cuts against the grain in the ancient Near East, and let's go now to the postmodern West, you know, us, from then, there, here, now. Okay? How do we think of ourselves? What is the place? Let's just talk about the, the individual. How are we known? How do we think of ourselves? By our activities, by our accomplishments, by our job, our duty, all those kinds of things. It's, and all that hour is pretty much a singular possessive, by the way. The, the, we think of ourselves chiefly not in terms of the where we came from or who we came from. We think of ourselves in terms of as, as an individual. And so that's why we have the emphasis that we do in our culture on rights. My rights. My freedoms. That's the emphasis. That's almost the deity of our culture. The person, whereas in the ancient world, the family and the tribe superseded and was above the individual, it's flipped now. In our culture, in our day, it's the tribe and, and the, the fam. excuse me, the, uh, the individual is over the tribe and the family in our day. It's completely flipped. So, here's how this cuts against the grain. Jesus says in, in that context, I'm putting you in a new family, and everybody's like, what? He says to this context, I'm putting you in a family. Just the fact that he says, I'm putting you into a family, into a body, and that needs to be the way you understand yourself. That's the offense. Do you see? Here again, he's cutting right against the grain. He explodes the categories of what the us-ness was before, and now he's by putting us in an us, because we're so accustomed to think of just ourselves as individuals, he's exploding that as well. No one gets off scot-free. The radical implications are he's giving us a new identity, a new way of thinking of ourselves. At least we need to as his followers. It reminds me something of premarital counseling, a new identity, a new way of thinking of yourself. Uh, typically, this is how it goes for me when I'm doing premarital counseling. Okay, uh, With a, a younger couple... I find myself needing to emphasize uh, things, well, oftentimes, I don't mean to be unkind, but sometimes maturity issues and maybe um, lack of skills when it comes to finances and things like that and how to wrestle through with things like that. A host of other things, too, but you know those are two big ones. But if the, if, if the, if the individuals have been single for some, a longer period of time, then you have a completely new set of things. You have long-standing habits and stubborn ways of thinking about themselves. The need to understand that in God's economy in marriage, one plus one does not equal two. It equals one. 
And that's a paradigm shift, is it not? That's a whole other way of thinking about yourself and your identity in many respects. What it actually means to leave and cleave and become, in the richest, deepest sense, one flesh. That's a whole new way of thinking about yourself. Well, it's something like that with what Jesus is saying here. You need to think of yourself in a whole new way. I've given you a whole new identity. I mean, think with me. How ought we to be thinking of ourselves? Or, if I can take it and push it a little further, what gives Jesus the right? What gives Jesus the right to define and redefine us in these ways? As Paul tells us, we are not our own. We have been bought with a price. That's how we should think of ourselves, and that's what gives him the right. We are no longer our own. We have been bought with a price. The precious blood of our Lord, Savior, King, Jesus. Adopted, redeemed, which means chiefly, coming back to the balkanization thing I mentioned at the beginning of the service, though we might be tempted to think of ourselves in terms of race or gender or culture or class or background or rank or whatever label you want to put on yourself or others under the sun, those things ultimately don't matter as far as our standing before the king and our worth before him. We are to think of ourselves as his children, as members of his family. And oh my goodness, is that not a message that this broken, fractured, shattered, divided, balkanized world needs to hear? That Jesus alone is what is going to destroy those divisions and bring us together? The radical implications of the Gospel, the radical implications of Jesus' coming, and just I really haven't gotten into that much detail yet of what Jesus is saying, but just the as the the governing assumptions of what he's saying drive us in this direction. A new identity that we dare not miss. A new reality, a new identity, and lastly, this thing, and this might be the hardest for us to hear, I don't know. A new community. A new community. And you note the distinctions that Jesus makes here between the physical family and the spiritual family. The physical family, how does the membership with that come about? Well, it's pretty obvious. I'll just kind of summarize it by saying by blood, by, either by birth or adoption. Okay? Putting them both under, just say, by blood. And if, if you, you're in by either of those, you're in. Whoever is born into it, like it or lump it. Whoever is adopted into it is included. Now, everybody else is exclusive in that sense, but it's completely inclusive in the sense of whoever's in is in. And Jesus speaks to the, its importance, the importance, even as he is redefining the physical family. Even as he's putting it in its proper place, he is not utterly denigrating it or, or just negating it and destroying it. I mean, you think in terms of his own teaching. There are places in the Gospels where we read of his saying that children should honor their parents. Young and old children should be honoring their parents. His own practice as a, as a youngster in the way he engaged with his 
uh, with his family. You read that, you know, at age 12, the whole temple thing and, and, and all of that. They're in Luke's Gospel. And then, and then you think in terms of oh, hanging on the cross. Oh my goodness, he, he provides for his mother and putting her under the care of John. And after the resurrection, he appears to his half-brother James. And therein, James becomes one of the leaders of the early church. So, so Jesus is certainly showing his, the importance that the uh, physical family has, even as he's putting it in its proper place. Even as that he's saying, you know, it certainly is not going to go above the spiritual family, but most is going to come beside. Beside. Now, how do we, speaking of the spiritual family, how are we made members into that? By faith. Not by blood, but by faith. And you see that here in verses 29 and, uh, excuse me, uh, 49 and, and 50, alluded to that here. And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. That's not by blood. And whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Now, don't, don't misunderstand what he's saying here. He is not saying that we become members of the spiritual family by our obedience to him. That's not what he means at all. What he means here is, is that it is through our obedience to him that we bear witness to the fact that we are already members of his family. Okay? It's importance. We see that also in, in how Jesus speaks of, through his word, uh, regarding the spiritual family. We, could, we had an hour or so, we could just read the book of Ephesians and it would make that pretty plain. Or maybe 15, 20 minutes, we could read chapters 12 and following of the book of Romans. Okay, but I've just got a couple texts I want to take you to. Uh, you see his heart for his family, his church in Acts 20. Acts chapter 20, his, uh, this is Paul, um, Jesus' apostle, Paul speaking uh, to a group of elders uh, from the city of Ephesus. Uh, Paul speaking to these elders in Acts 20, verse 28. Listen to what he says. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God which he obtained with his own blood. You see our Lord's heart for his family, his church, his flock, his body, his people. We can see his purposes for us as well. Uh, if you go to 1 Peter, uh, 1 Peter chapter 2, uh, this is to the right in your New Testament, uh, after Paul's letters and um, after Hebrews and James, you get to Peter's letters and get 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 and 5. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Then you skip over to verse 9. Listen to the imagery with which he is describing us as his family. Us as the church. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have receive mercy. You hear the importance here and, and, and the, the heart here in, of both Jesus of his people, of his family, of his own. Radical implication. 
radical implication of His calling us into uh, community. Now, it is an odd kind of community, though, isn't it? Um, a couple of quotes here on top of your quotes and notes. Uh, the first one is anonymous. So therein, that's not an old Greek name. Um, actually, we just don't know who said it. But it's somewhat pithy, somewhat memorable. To dwell in love with saints above, why that will be glory. To dwell with saints I know, why that's a different story. It's an odd community. Chuck Colson, the next quote. Chuck Colson in his book, Being the Body, as has been said, the church of Jesus Christ would be like Noah's Ark. The stench inside would be unbearable if it weren't for the storm outside. So it's an odd body. And we know that. We know that. Um, what are we to do with all of this? The fact that He has called us to be a new community. We are to love our families, but love Jesus more. We are to love our families, but love Jesus more. It's very plain from this text. Something else, though. His family is not always so easy to love. Right? I mean, are you, am I, always so lovable? When you get the mass of us together, are we always so lovable? The problem comes, though, we use that reality as an excuse. As an excuse to separate. As an excuse to not get engaged with our family, with the community that he has placed us in. Um, I don't know how many times I have wrestled with this with other individuals, and it's certainly a growing trend in our culture today and within the church as well, where community, the, the, the longing for authentic community is expressed, and that's good and right to want it. And then when it's presented and opportunities to pursue it are right there, it's refused. We talk a good game about wanting community and then are unwilling to do what it takes to pursue it. Why? If you'll bear with me, I want to give you two reasons. Two reasons that I think are at the root of this. One is what I'll call a naive perfectionism. A naive perfectionism. There's a quote in your quotes and notes from Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who, by the way, almost always is worth hearing. And this is a case in which he is worth hearing. Uh, in his little book, Life Together, listen to what he says. Okay, Listen to what he says. It's the third one down, just under the Colson one about the, the arc. Innumerable times a whole Christian community is broken down because it had sprung from a wish dream. A serious Christian set down for the first time in a Christian community is likely to bring with him a very definite idea of what a Christian life together should be and try to realize it. 
But God's grace speedily shatters such dreams. Just as surely as God desires to lead us to a knowledge of genuine Christian fellowship, so surely must we be overwhelmed by a great disillusionment with others, with Christians in general, and if we are fortunate, with ourselves. I think that's one of Bonhoeffer's dead on right. That's one of the reasons why the very thing we say we want, we resist. This naive idealism. But there's a second one. And can I just say it's pride? It's pride. And can I just say to that that none of us have arrived? You know, we're going we're gonna to sta- stand off because I don't really have anything to learn from you. I don't really need you. That whole business about interdependency in the body, yeah, okay, I got what Paul is saying, right? 1 Corinthians 12 and all that, body life, yeah. But I don't really believe it. I don't believe it. The eye says to the ear, I don't need you. The ear says to the foot, I don't need you. There's pride there. My friends, none of us have arrived. We are all so much more flawed than we dare know. And we truly are so much, made to be, made to be so much more interdependent than we allow ourselves to be. We really are. We really, truly are. If, if in fact, if in fact, we're to live this out in any faithful way at all, Matthew 12, if we're to live this out in, at all in any faithful way, if we in fact are to give the proper place to the spiritual family that we're designed and intended for, it therein means that we will not spend so much time critiquing the church, but engaging in it. We will spend far less time complaining and a whole lot more time investing and sacrificing. It has to be. It has to be if what Jesus is saying here in Matthew 12 is true. If, in fact, it is true. Now, I know everything I just said over about the last two, three minutes, some of you are just waiting for this benediction, this service be done. I know this is hard. I know this goes against the grain. I got it. Think of the waters that we swim in. Think of the air in which we were raised. Of course this cuts against the grain of our sensibilities and our own private, personal desires. Of course it does. And Jesus in His love is speaking right into that. In His love is speaking right into that. Radical implications of the Gospel means new community. Let me end with this. I grew up, speaking of air you breathe and all of that, I grew up as a kid, you know, this is before you've got multiple channels and the internet and all that to watch. So I was raised Saturday morning, it's cartoons, baby. Uh, Saturday, <laughs> maybe it still is. I, don't, <laughs> I mean, uh, Saturday morning is cartoon time. And, you know, my brother and I, we had our schedule, we knew what shows were on. Even if we couldn't read, we knew what time, you know, okay, big hand, little hand, don't wake dad to ask him, big hand, little hand, oh, Bugs Bunny, good. And, but, you know, 
even the reruns, if it was, you know, like 7 o'clock, yes, we would get up early on a Saturday morning. Not now, but, er, er, you know, when, when it's cartoon time, you're up. And I can remember watching even then reruns of Mr. Magoo. You know Mr. Magoo? Okay, this, 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 if those of you who don't know and those of you who don't want to acknowledge it, and you're, you're, you do know, actually, Mr. Magoo is this little old man. He's desperately nearsighted, practically, practically blind. And every plot line consists of Mr. Magoo bumbling through the city or wherever it was that he, he was, and somehow it would seem by miraculous intervention, he survives to the end of the episode. And it's you know, meant to be comedic and you know, amusing and all that. I fear we're like Mr. Magoo. Desperately nearsighted unable to take in God's intentions and grand purposes for us. And they're in bumbling around and the world wondering, do they even know what they're doing? What are God's great purposes for us? Let me read you this uh, uh, clip, uh, quote from Paul Tripp, his wonderful book, Instruments in the Redeemer's Hands. A little quote from there. Your life is bigger than a good job, an understanding spouse, and non-delinquent kids. It is bigger than beautiful gardens, nice vacations, and fashionable clothes. In reality, you are part of something immense, something that has began before you were born and will continue after you die. Gee, excuse me, God is rescuing fallen humanity, transporting them into his kingdom, and progressively shaping them into his likeness, and he wants you to be part of it. See, God in his mercy takes us just as he finds us, but in his mercy doesn't leave us as he finds us. God in his mercy takes us one by one, these individual stories and plot lines, and transplants us into a larger narrative. Okay, so here's where his purpose and the church come together. In his grace, his intention for you and I as individuals is, yes, absolutely, slowly but surely, to work in and through us Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control in us. And then through us, corporately, to be salt and light, a city on a hill, living witnesses testifying to a king and an eternal kingdom. Those are his grand overarching purposes in us for us, in us, and through us, new reality, new identity, new community. He's come, He's called us into fellowship with Himself and with one another. Oh, that we would hear that. Oh, that we would grapple with that. Oh, that we would take that seriously in its implications. Let's pray. Lord, how could we miss this? Your words are so very clear. You indeed have obviously come as the one true King. We have um, shown ourselves to be unfit to rule. Uh, we are made for and called to fellowship with you and with one another. We ask that you would help us to hear the force of this, that where it offends, that you would let it offend. That, that it, would, it would strike the nerve that it needs to strike. And that we would see in our defensiveness a signal, a warning flag that indeed something is wrong, but not in you, but in us. 
a new reality, a new identity, and a new community. We are not to be self-ruled, self-sufficient, self-dependent. Thank You for how You indeed continue to work in us and we know You intend to do that in a corporate way through us. We ask that You would help us to see that and what giving Your spiritual family proper place would look like in our own lives. We pray in Your name. Amen.